0: at butcherbox.com/morning cup and use code Morning Cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get20 dollars off your first order. Every town has a dark side. This is Andrew Fitzgerald from the Everytown podcast where every single week we dive into insane and mysterious true crime stories, most of which you've never heard of. Stories like the bizarre disappearance of Tyler Davis in Columbus, Ohio a 29-year-old father trying to find his way back to his hotel when he disappeared and was never heard from again. And Elizabeth Shove from Lugoff, South Carolina, who was abducted from her driveway by a madman and taken to his underground bunker in the woods. We give you all the details you're interested in hearing about without any fluff or fillers, because ain't nobody got time for that. We cover everything from psychopaths to poltergeists, so go check out the Everytown podcast, because Everytown... No matter how nice it may seem, has a dark side. There were two more murders fifteen miles away. When police arrived, like they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird morning. Sometimes good things come with terrible consequences. On December 18th, 1951, a young boy was born into a family who, in 1960, seemed to be suddenly struck with incredibly good luck. An amazing gift that, in the end, cost the young boy his life. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. In the year 1960, the Sydney Opera House construction was becoming more expensive than previously thought. So, as a means to help raise the necessary funds, the New South Wales government initiated Opera House lotteries in which a grand prize, equivalent of over three million Australian dollars in today's money, was won by a man named Basil Thorne. For the sake of transparency and with no real concept of privacy, images and private details about the lottery winners were posted on the front pages of Sydney newspapers, meaning everyone in the area now knew exactly who won, where they resided, and how much money they had to their names. They had no clue that in revealing what Basil won and that the earnings would be paid out on July 7th, 1960, that they placed the members of his family in grave danger. More specifically, his eight-year-old son, Graham Thorne. Born December 18th, 1951, Graham lived in a rented house in Bondi with his mother Frida, father Basil, older sister Cheryl, and young sister Belinda. On the morning of July 7, 1960, Graham walked, like he did almost every single morning, less than a mile away from his home to the corner of Wellington and O'Brien Streets to wait for family friend Phyllis Smith to arrive and take him to school along with her sons. He left the home at 8.30 a.m., but when Phyllis came to their meeting spot at 8.40, the young boy was nowhere to be found. Wondering if he just got a late start, she drove along his route to the Thorn residence and, not seeing him, went to ask Frida if Graham was sick. Frida, shocked, told her friend that her son had already left that morning for school and that maybe he found an alternate way to get there. So Phyllis drove to the Scots College in Bellevue Hill where she was told that the young boy never made it to the school. Now, Frida was panicking. She called the police as soon as Phyllis told her the news and reported her son missing. Almost exactly one hour after Phyllis realized that Graham was not where he was supposed to be, a man with a noticeable foreign accent called the Thorn household and, taking the phone from Frida, Sergeant Larry O'Shea pretended to be Basil Thorne and spoke to the kidnapper. Basil was at the time in Kempsey on business. The kidnapper told the man on the phone, quote, I have your boy. I want 25,000 pounds before five o'clock this afternoon. I'm not fooling. If I don't get the money before five o'clock, I'll feed the boy to the sharks. Sergeant O'Shea, not realizing the family had just won the lottery, expressed to the caller his doubt that he could get such a large sum in time with the caller unfazed, said he would call back at around five with more details before hanging up. Minutes later, the phone rang again and another officer, still pretending to be Basil, tried to stall for as long as possible to try and pick up a trace. The kidnapper started rattling off instructions for the drop-off, but then abruptly hung up before finishing. While officers searched for any clues that might lead them to Graham Thorne before the kidnappers got their way, News of the crime leaked to Bill Jenkins of the Sydney Daily Mirror. As news started to spread, shock overtook the citizens of Australia, who, completely enamored with the case, watched as the country's first well-known kidnap for ransom took place in real time. A public appeal was made on television at 8.30 that night, complete with an emotional Basil Thorne, who had now come home to join the search for his son and a number of fake and prank phone calls flooded the family phone from people both pretending to be the kidnappers making demands and their missing son. With no progress and no further calls from the actual kidnapper, the very next day, July 8th, the investigation shifted to Sydney's northeastern suburbs when Graham's school case was found near Seaforth. A tip came in that day claiming that a boy matching Graham's description was seen with two men and a woman heading out of Pennant Hills, and the owners of the gas station reportedly saw that same group pulling into a spot with a dark-colored Dodge-type sedan at around 10 p.m. the night of the disappearance. Saying the number plate on the front of the vehicle was missing, they claimed that as the group pulled away from the station, they were able to get a good enough look at the rear plate number that, When an off-duty police officer spotted it the very next day, before it sped off, they managed to run the numbers and learned the plate was registered to a different vehicle. On July 11th, the boy's school cap and the contents of that case were found. And with that discovery came the announcement of a £5,000 reward as well as a £15,000 one offered by two local newspapers. The rewards, unfortunately, led to an increase in the crank calls. The investigation continued, now being led by Ray Kelly with the help of Sydney's extensive underworld, and following what information they had, they learned that on June 14, 1960, weeks before the kidnapping, but after the announcement of Basil's lottery win, a man with a foreign accent came to the Thorne residence asking for a Mr. Bogner. Posing as a private investigator and asking Frida to confirm their, as of yet, unlisted phone number, this man then came to their door asking to check the telephone. Though she thought the ordeal was strange, especially considering their phone had yet to be installed, she confirmed what information the man needed to know, and then he left without any issue. Officials, believing this was the kidnapper making sure he knew where to call to make his ransom demands now knew that Frida actually saw her son's abductor and knew what the man looked like. In fact, a similar-looking man was seen by multiple witnesses in the park opposite of the Thorn home. and again at around 8.20 a.m. the morning of the kidnapping in an iridescent blue 1955 Ford Custom Line that was double-parked on the street corner near where Graham went every single morning to wait for Phyllis. With these new pieces of evidence, the police checked more than 270,000 registration records and found that there were a total of 5,000 that matched witness descriptions. Assuming the car had either been borrowed or stolen, officers began interviewing all of the owners, which included a man named Stephen Bradley, who denied being in Bondi the day the kidnapping occurred. While it seemed the police were heading in the right direction, things took a sudden hit when... After weeks of searching, two young boys, both eight years old, were walking with their fathers on August 16th, 1960, when they happened upon the body of their former neighborhood playmate. Graham Thorne's body was found in a vacant spot of land in Grandview Grove, wrapped in a blanket and wedged under a large rock. He was still dressed in his school uniform, his right shoe missing, and had a scarf shoved into his mouth to prevent him from screaming. According to the autopsy, the boy likely died within 24 hours of his abduction, and his cause of death was either a blow to the head that fractured his skull, asphyxiation due to the gag, or a combination of both. With the Thorne family absolutely devastated, the investigators picked things back up, and instead of focusing on finding the missing boy, they switched gears and went looking for the man who killed him. Forensic examinations of the blanket found wrapped around the boy determined that it was manufactured in South Australia sometime between June 6, 1955, and January 19, 1956. Sold in Melbourne, the blanket had spores from two different trees that were not present in the lot where Graham was found. Along with the trees were both Pekingese and blonde human hair and in the soil scrapings taken from both the body and the blanket, investigators found tiny fragments of pink limestone mortar, leading them to believe that the body was stored under a house for some time. With all of that information, they went looking for a house with pink mortar, a blue car parked in the driveway, and with two very specific tree types in their yards. Following a tip from a local postman, Police set their sights on 28 Moore Street in Klontarf and knocked on the door on October 3rd. Learning that it was occupied by a Hungarian immigrant, they realized that not only did Stephen Bailey have a Pekingese as a pet and a blonde wife, but he also had an iridescent blue 1955 Ford Custom line and because of that had already been interviewed prior to the body being found. Unfortunately, they also found out that Stephen and his family left the house on July 7th to rent a flat in Manly. And as of that exact moment, they were on the SS Himalaya on the way to London. Needing to act fast, when the boat docked in Colombo Salon on October 10th, Stephen Bradley was met with two Sydney policemen. After five weeks of legal battle, he was finally extradited back to Australia on November 18th, 1960, after making an oral confession to Sergeant Jack Bateman. Although he would later recant his story, Stephen signed a written confession. At the trial, little bits and pieces of Stephen Bradley's past were finally revealed. Like the fact that he was born in Budapest, survived World War II and the communist takeover, came to Melbourne in 1950, was divorced before marrying and having children with Eva Marie Laszlo, who he lived with until her perhaps suspicious death, in a 1955 car accident, that he married for a third time in 1958, and that, taking care of his children and hers, he worked multiple jobs but was still having trouble making ends meet for his blended family. Though he confessed before and was identified by Frieda Thorne as the man who came to her house that day, Stephen Bradley pleaded not guilty to murder but did admit to the kidnapping stating that after days of watching the boy and learning his morning routine, he followed Graham Thorne to school and parked his car in the spot along the route where he would meet up with Phyllis Smith. He waited, bided his time, and then lured the boy who he knew from the media came from a family who had recently won a large sum of money. He said that he took the boy to Centennial Park where he assaulted him, rendering him unconscious, and then tied him up in the blanket that was purchased for his wife as a gift. He then placed Graham in the trunk of his car, drove to Harbor Bridge, and made that first ransom call. Heading back home, Stephen claimed he checked on the boy and found that he was alive and well. However, at around 3 p.m., he checked for a second time and realized that Graham had, quote, accidentally suffocated inside of the trunk. This, however, was disproven by forensics experts, who said he could have lay inside that trunk for several hours without any issue. Finding Graham Thorne dead did not stop Stephen's quest for money. He placed the other call, knowing that the Thorns would never see their son ever again. After nine days of trial, Stephen Bradley was sentenced to penal servitude for life, the maximum penalty provided in New South Wales, and was sent to Goulburn Jail, where he worked as a hospital orderly until his death on October 6, 1968, of a heart attack. He was 42 years old when he collapsed while playing in a tennis competition at the prison. According to the sources, he never showed an ounce of remorse for taking the life of Graham Thorne. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to a terrible thing happened on December 19th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.